This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, May 18th of 2017, it's episode 110. In this episode, the Reverend Derek White joins us to discuss spiritual warfare, plus our favorite psalms, Gary Khan, Fear the Con and Fake Beards to Beat Cancer with, the Karma RPG System, and much more. Welcome to Saving the Game, I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. And I'm Derek. Hey, Derek's back. Derek, how are you, man? Hey. I'm doing pretty decent now that we've got the technical difficulties out of the way. I'm doing wonderful. Yeah, apparently there were a series of those, so we're glad you could join us tonight. I am happy to be here with you guys. It is always great to be back with you. All right, so for listeners who have not heard our whole backlog, uh, Derek, go ahead and introduce yourself real quick. My name is uh, Derek White. I am an ordained United Methodist minister, and uh, I am known uh, in geek circles as the geek preacher or geek preacher, and I uh, do a lot of ministry at gaming conventions uh, around the country. I speak and help hold worship services for Christians at gaming conventions. I also work in interfaith dialogue in the community and try and be an advocate to help build a bridge between the church and the gaming community that sadly uh, have not been present before. That's me in a nutshell. I, I uh, pastor full time and I'm uh, I live in Tennessee. Awesome. And for the record, also an awesome dude. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we, we've had the pleasure to meet Derek at Fear the Con, which we'll talk about in a bit. Awesome guy. Every episode that we've had you on previously, excellent episode. I will link uh, a list of those in the show notes, just for the record. We've actually had him on two previous episodes of Saving the Game, and he also joined us on our Game to Grow Gaming and Spirituality panel that we did. All of those are worth watching <laughs> or listening to. Exactly. Derek, you got anything in particular that you want to plug before we kind of dive right into the meat of this episode? Well, I know you guys are going to talk about Fear the Con, but I have to say I've been to one Fear the Con, and it was a blast. And I know that's coming up in June, and if all works out well, uh, my family and I may be there. I'm not making any promises yet, but we're looking forward to going to Fear the Con. I also love to plug Gary Khan. Last year, I was named the official chaplain for the Gary Khan Old School Gaming Convention in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, uh, which is held every March in honor of Gary Gygax, as well as all of the other founders of our hobby. It's a wonderful gaming convention with lots of old school gaming, lots of new school gaming. Uh, you can find every RPG from the 1974 Dungeons and Dragons to uh, Fate, Savage Worlds, D&D 5th Edition, everything across the board. And uh, if you've never had a chance to go to Gary Khan, you should uh, start making arrangements now. It is one of the premier gaming events in the country. Sweet. I will make sure to link Gary Khan in the show notes. Speaking of cons, we need to talk about Fear the Con real quick. Oh, yes, we do. Yep. Listeners of the show may know that Fear the Boot is sort of our godparent podcast. We're not an official spinoff or official child of Fear the Boot or anything like that, but we all met through the Fear the Boot community. We all kind of still mentally think of ourselves as members of that community, even if we're not like active on the forums or that sort of thing. 
We go to Fear the Con, which is the convention they put on, you know, when we can, etc. We have lots of friends that we have met through that same community. Yeah. Most of my friends are either former co-workers or booters, in fact. So, yeah. Every host of this show has been a member of the Fear the Boot community. Let's put it that way. One of the regular hosts of Fear the Boot, Pat Roper, was recently diagnosed with stage 3 pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic cancer is particularly aggressive, and his treatment is thus equally aggressive. Treatment for cancer is expensive, and his family's going through a lot of hardships right now. As a result, there's a campaign to support Pat and his family at Fear the Con. Uh, We had Derek Knutson on previously to talk about Fear the Charity. This year, Fear the Charity, all of that money is going to Pat's family to help support him and his medical bills and that sort of thing. I actually talked with his wife earlier today, and she said that they're waiting on tests to come back, and Pat is still doing chemo every other week. So, you know, it's an ongoing, lengthy process for treatment. Now, the good news is that as of this recording, they've raised over $6,000. The goal is $20,000 to complete this particular GoFundMe process. So this is where we're going to throw our hat in the ring. Or our beards in the ring. (laughs) Uh, Mikey Mason, another friend of the show. Oh, Mikey. Mikey's great. He offered to dye his beard ridiculous colors if a particular goal was hit. And one of our listeners, uh, Daniel Krensky, Sergeant Dan, offered to match that goal, as it were. I believe the word manicorn was thrown around. (laughs) Royal blue and sparkles and glitter, (laughs) which is marvelous. Now, we would love to get in on this, but I'm not really allowed to dye my beard. I have (laughs) work. And Peter has work, and his beard is mostly stubble. Yeah, it's very short. (laughs) And I can't grow one. And I can't grow one at all. Jenny is also not allowed to dye her beard for work, but there are other problems. It turns out, however, that ridiculously large fake beards are easily purchasable on the internet. I know this for previous research, don't ask. (laughs) I promise we won't check your browsing history. Here's a hint. It's also for gaming. I even know what specific gaming, but I'm not telling either. (laughs) Let's just say using the phrase role-playing and beards gives people weird connotations. (laughs) Oh, yes. Very much so. (laughs) At any rate, here's what we're throwing down. If the fundraiser for Pat, the Fear of the Charity, collective fundraiser, and there are a lot of people contributing in different ways, but if that total amount reaches $8K, $8,000, by the time Fear the Con rolls around, which I believe is June 22nd is the cutoff date for that, we will all get fake beards. And we will dye them and manufacture them and tweak them and twist them and put fascinating things in them and make them the most ridiculous beards possible. I have lots of time and I'm married to a crafter. You do not know how far I'm going to go with this. You want to find out, but you do not know, I promise you. We will have the most ridiculous fake beards you can possibly imagine. And those of us attending Fear the Con will wear them. Now... I will not, unfortunately, be able to attend Fear the Con this year. Uh, I just can't be away from the kids that long, is ultimately the reason. But I will also acquire a fake beard and take plenty of pictures with it. 
but Peter and Jenny have offered to wear their ridiculous beards to the con and, I hope, game with them. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, yes, absolutely. You may have difficulty removing my beard from me afterwards. Uh, as people who have gone to a previous Fear the Con are well aware, once I am given a fake mustache even, you can't take it away from me. I love it. I, I really, really, really am looking forward to doing this. And I really hope that we can meet the goal in order to do it because I want to wear a fake beard and roleplay probably characters who don't have beards. That's the ideal world, yes. We need I, to roleplay the most beardless characters possible. Maximum possible... Cognitive dissonance at the table? That's the word. Yes! <laughs> Perfect. I don't know, Jenny. I mean, female dwarves, you can play a female dwarf with the beard. Because there is mm -hmm. that debate, you know. Do it, yeah, female but, dwarves you know, have there is. It, it's one of those canonical disputes. Mm -hmm. so. yeah. Well, and I mean, Jenny is on the tiny side, so that... <laughs> yes, I am very much on the tiny side. Though I've been told I'm more Hobbit-like because of my obsession with tea and my hairy feet. So... <laughs> All right, well, fair enough. <laughs> I don't know. I think you're more of a dwarf. You played rugby for a while. You're too much of a wrecking I machine did. to be a Hobbit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, if you can donate to this particular charity, it goes to a good cause. It supports a good man in his time of need. I will link it in the show notes. I will also link the blog post that we did explaining this a little as well in the show notes. Uh, you will also see a wonderfully badly photoshopped picture of my beard in there. So that's fun. Uh, and, you know, if you have a minute, pray for Pat, too. You know, he, he yes. and his family certainly need that. Hey, folks, Grant here with some excellent news. Between the time we recorded this episode with Derek and the time it goes live... We've actually already hit our 8K gold for Pat's charity fundraiser. This is awesome. Thank you, all of you, for your support. We really appreciate it. If you haven't donated yet, we really do encourage you to do so. The fact that we've hit our 8K goal doesn't mean that Pat's family and him have the funds that they need quite yet. But, good news, you will see us in ridiculous beards at Fear the Con, or at least you'll see Peter and Jenny. Have fun with that, and do continue to spread the word about Fear the Con, Fear the Charity... This fundraiser for Pat, it'll help everybody, and do keep praying for him. We appreciate it. Thanks. Couple other quick notes. First, one of our listeners, Gareth Graham of Frenzy Kitty Games, out of South Africa, which is pretty cool, asked me to let people know that his role-playing game, Karma RPG, is currently in the crowdfunding process through Indiegogo. Now, I don't necessarily want to call this a plug or an endorsement, but anytime a listener reaches out and says, hey, I've got a thing going on, I do kind of like to at least mention it. So uh, I will link that in the show notes. Take a look at it. Who knows? Maybe we'll be able to do something with him in the future. But I wanted to at least mention it for listeners who might be interested. You know, support one of our own if you like the product that they're putting out. It's a three to five player GM-less game, kind of like Fiasco, but a little more for um, universal applications. People in stressful situations, basically, without the Coen Brothers movie simulator design of Fiasco. Uh, should be pretty cool. Take a look at it. There's a couple of uh, videos and blog posts linked in the Indiegogo campaign to kind of describe it a little more. And last, I want to mention that starting next episode, we're going to be focusing throughout the summer on mental health and gaming. Mm. We're going to have a lot of fine folks from our Game to Grow series and elsewhere coming on the show, talking with us about different aspects of mental health, gaming, counseling, care for others, things like that. 
Because as much as we talk about that as a thing we support, we haven't really had episodes dedicated to it since we had Jack Birkenstock on back in episode 25. So we're a little overdue. We're overdue, Mm -hmm. you're right. So we wanted to pick that up, focus on that, and we've made enough contacts in that field that we really can spend a number of episodes talking about this. We're going to be talking to a lot of different people with different perspectives, and we're going to mix in a few other topics as well, but that's really going to be our focus throughout the summer. So look forward to that and, you know, let people know if that's something they want to be interested in. All right, we've had a a lot of that. We have a big topic to talk about, but first I do want to get to our Patreon question. And I'm not going to roll this time. As mentioned last episode, we had a number of them that got lost and were recently recovered. So I'm going to pick this one from Francisco Ruiz of the Retro Rewind podcast. We're going to start rolling again next episode. Don't worry. Uh, And Francisco asks, what are your favorite psalms and do you have them memorized? Anybody want to take this one? Psalm 40. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my foot upon the rock, and established my goings. He put a new song in my mouth. Praise be to our God. That's as far as I memorize Psalm 40, but that is my favorite psalm. So, I have a confession for you. That's also my favorite psalm, (laughs) but that's mostly because... And the reason I, I remember any part of it at all is because of the U2 version of that psalm. There's a U2 oh. version? Yes. It's called 40. I did not know that. Yep. I will it have is to the look it last track on War, 1983's War album. Wow. I See, I had no idea. You could tell I never was a big, huge U2 fan in the 80s. I was an enormous U2 fan throughout high school, and I still have all of their albums. Like, all of them. I was at the point where I was buying singles. So, there you go. Oh my goodness. This generation doesn't even know everything's a single for for today's world. (laughs) That's very true. I actually sing that particular rendition of Psalm 40 to my kids as a lullaby, so that's fine. That's lovely. That's sweet. It's a nice song, and it's a psalm. It's nice. Anyone else? I don't have my favorite song memorized, and I probably should, but it's sort of a new favorite because my parents and I, uh, after dinner, almost every night, we uh, read uh, generally one or two chapters of uh, of a book of the Bible, and we go through them, you know, all the way through. And we recently finished the entire book of Psalms. We had to take it in, I think, three stages, but mine is one of the later ones, Psalm 140. Uh, rescue me, Lord, from evildoers, protect me from the violent who devise evil plans in their hearts and start up war every day, um, and so on and so forth. I, I like that one a lot. For me, the Psalms have much more of a musical element in a lot of ways because my dad grew up singing in a church choir for a long time. And so he has a lot of <laughs> a lot of the tenor lines memorized for the Psalms. So I know some of the Psalms better as actual songs That's than awesome. I do as psalms. Yeah. Well, I can't get anywhere near any of that. Um, <laughs> I This is very awkward for me, but I am a terrible appreciator of psalms because I don't really have a favorite one and I don't have any of them memorized. The parts of scripture that I tend to fixate on and commit to memory tend to either come from the gospels or the prophets. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I only have the YouTube version of that psalm memorized. I do not have the actual text memorized. Yeah. 
Well, just remember, uh, Peter, Jesus quoted the Psalms a lot, so you're cool. Yeah. Well, let's not be crazy here about my relative coolness level, but <laughs> that gives me some hope anyway. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So, yeah, interesting question, Francisco. Thank you. Go ahead and send us another one in when you can. And if you want to get a question on our show, just back us on Patreon, patreon.com slash saving the game. Any amount gets you questions and there are other rewards for higher tiers. So check those out. Okay, let's get into our main topic and our scripture. Who wants to start us off with Genesis? This is Genesis 3, verses 13 through 15. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God cursed the serpent. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. I'll take uh, 2 Kings here. This is 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 to 17. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked, and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I can take Luke, if that's okay. Uh, the reading from Luke is chapter 8, verses 26 to 31. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a, de a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in his tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. Wow. Ephesians six ten through 13 Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So, our topic tonight is one that I admit I am not especially familiar with because it's not a significantly important aspect of, well, Presbyterianism. But this is one that Peter and Derek definitely wanted to talk about. Uh, Peter, do you want to introduce this? Sure. So, uh, as you probably have noticed if you've been looking at our weekend reading stuff that we recently introduced... I am a fan of a lay theologian named Richard Beck. I know of Richard Beck because of Derek. This guy wrote a book called Reviving Old Scratch, Demons and the Devil for the Doubting and the Disenchanted uh, a little while back, and both Derek and I have read it. I actually devoured the entire thing in a single day uh, once I got started reading it, and um, 
we figured there was enough material here to make a podcast out of, so we had Derek on, because Excellent. he is also a fan of Beck. Right, and so. we're talking generally about spiritual warfare, just to be clear. Yes, spiritual warfare. I should warfare. have said that at some point in that description, huh? I mean, it helps, yes. Yeah, which which the kind of the scripture verses led into that, but yes, it's it's definitely a spiritual warfare topic. Right. And this is a concept that I think mostly comes from the more charismatic and evangelical parts of the Christian spectrum. Am I right? And both Derek and I have backgrounds in that, so it seems fitting. Fair enough. I've also seen it fairly often in Catholicism as well. Okay. Yes, and you will see it in mainline churches outside of America. While it is not a part of United Methodism in the United States, it is definitely found within United Methodism outside the United States. Okay. One of the interesting things about this, just from what I have picked up, is that there are a lot of different flavors of this idea of spiritual warfare. And normally I would start off defining this, but really there are a couple of different definitions depending on which flavor you accept. So why don't we start at the most dramatic and possibly the one that's most familiar to people, at least through media. So this is this is kind of what I would call the this present darkness version of it. <clears throat> the idea is that there's an invisible world filled with angels and demons locked in battle with each other. And those battles influence and are influenced by events in the world that we can see. And the name comes from a Frank Peretti book, right? Yes, which I hasten to add is actually a very good read. Frank Peretti, for whatever theological issues you may or may not have with him, is an excellent writer. And Definitely. that is a gripping book. <laughs> Definitely a good book. It really is. Uh, the problem I had with the book, of course, is that back in the day when it came out, everybody almost put it on the same level as the Bible. And even Frank Peretti at that time said, no, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm just writing fiction. Yeah, it it wasn't a work of theology. It was a work of fiction with theological trappings. Right. And, and so this idea is that you have angelic forces bolstered and strengthened by prayer, and that prayer influences and reinforces something all happening right, on a different We're all plane. geeks here, okay? It works just like video game power-ups, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, a great pop culture example would be the TV series Constantine. For anyone who's seen Constantine, that would yeah. be a re or the comic book character. Uh, we act like the Keanu Reeves movie doesn't exist. Uh, no, I actually liked the Keanu Reeves movie. I, me too. Uh, I, I liked it. It was really good. Yeah. I did too. I was about to get it very is not upset. Necessarily <laughs> the same as Hellblazer, but it was a fine movie, and Keanu Reeves's weird wooden acting kind of worked for that weird character. One of the I best versions have... of the devil I've ever seen in a movie, too. Yes. Oh, yeah. And actually, Gabriel, as kind of that weird sort of, you know, twisted, fallen angel, really worked very well. Very like Tilda Swinton was good in a movie, you say? What madness is this? I know. Yeah, <laughs> but very visually striking as well. But we're getting slightly off yeah. topic. Uh, yeah. Well, but not really, because one of the criticisms of this particular approach is the sense of animism and sometimes dualism that this implies right this idea that everything is, you know has this spiritual side and spiritual reality is very animistic and the idea that there are these two opposing forces and everything is good or bad is 
very dualistic. We've talked about dualism and Gnosticism before, and really sometimes explicitly draws on Zoroastrian or Hellenic mystery cult ideas, and that's definitely a problem for this approach from a theological perspective. From a gameable perspective, of course, this is great, right? I mean, who, who yeah, couldn't I, love this? This is so dramatic. I mean, the Anomine role-playing game is basically built around this. You know, it brings up all kinds of great, like, visual images and that sort of thing. Although, I do hesitate to recommend this too wholeheartedly, even in a gaming context, because there's a key narrative problem with this, too. But before I get into that, I think, Derek, you wanted to say something? Well, gosh, there's so much I could say. Uh, on the gaming side of things, we've seen the dualistic approach of, of it since the beginning. That was the whole idea of the law chaos in early Dungeons and Dragons, is the two opposing forces that are constantly going at each other. In the early days, they didn't necessarily make it good versus evil. But there is, uh, I would have to agree with Grant, that is part of the problem with this approach to spiritual warfare. I, I think it's a problem we've admitted ourselves, but one of the huge problems is that we have made it dualistic. And that is, they are equally powerful and equally opposed forces. That's a huge issue. Uh, in the Hebrew tradition, uh, you have the angel called Semael, and you'll notice the name of God is in this angel's name, and Semael eventually becomes Lucifer, eventually becomes the fallen angel, that sort of thing. But Semael, in the Hebrew mindset, was was a tempter in a way. He was a tempter. He would have been the tempter that Job encountered. But he was not meant to be seen as evil. He was more like God's enforcer. And so many people with a Hebrew mindset, the Hebrew approach was not that this was a tempter there just to kind of keep you in check. God's way of just kind of uh, uh, checking yourself before you wreck yourself. And so that that's part of, of what eventually morphs into Lucifer, who morphs into Satan over the course of the over the course of the whole thing. So I mentioned that there's a narrative problem with this before. And, and this narrative problem actually leads into a second theological problem. And one of the key narrative issues with using this approach, not to say that it can't be overcome in your game if you want to use it, because once again, awesome and gameable, but just be aware of this. <clears throat> uh, it feeds into the notion that humans can't really do or contribute much of import to God's work, which runs very counter to scripture. Uh, if everything is decided by sword fights between angels and demons, it's very easy for the humans in the story to wind up feeling like extras instead of who the fighting is about. And that, in turn, leads to a very fatalistic theological outlook where we can't really do much except for maybe pray and, you know, have the right orthodoxy and, like, God and his quote-unquote real agents, the invisible angels that we can't see, will handle all of the improving of the world and stuff, and you just kind of have to sit on your hands. Uh, that's very unscriptural. <laughs> well, to a certain degree. I mean, a few people would say that, oh, no, that's basically Calvinism. And they're wrong, but not as wrong as you'd want them to be in some ways. 
you know, the idea that salvation comes entirely from God and, you know, we don't have anything to do with it is certainly theologically valid. But sure, but some of the <laughs> bringing about the kingdom of God in the world not being any our responsibility at all, that's that's just completely out of line with scripture. No, you're, you're this, absolutely is, this right. is where the Calvinist and the non Calvinist mix it up a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I and the preacher here is just sitting back eating popcorn. Oh, I, uh. I understand. But yeah, the guy with actual theological training yeah, he gets to watch. Um, <laughs> That's okay. But, I, I I was I was looking forward to this part of the conversation because I I, could, I knew coming in that you and Peter were on separate sides of this, and, and that yeah, is absolutely. that is kind of where the gist of it is, and that is why Grant, like you said, in your tradition, spiritual warfare is not talked about a whole lot. My wife grew up in the Presbyterian Church, a strongly Calvinist church, and because it is all foreordained by God, it's all already played out in the mind of God, we don't worry about it because it's all going on behind the scenes. We pray, we do our works of mercy, our works of piety, and all of these things that God requires of us. But we don't really worry about the spiritual as the spiritual warfare aspect of it behind the scenes, because God's got that taken care of. Whereas those of us on the those of us on the Armenian side. Uh, whereas we believe that salvation and grace and all of this is a divine gift from God, totally unearned, it requires from God our cooperation. So, right. And that's why we get accused of, of saying salvation is by works. We, we don't believe salvation is by works. We believe it originates in the heart of God. It flows from the heart of God. It's just that we must cooperate with it. And that's where the spiritual warfare aspect comes in, is while God is in control, God requires of us to cooperate with God in these battles. And so that's where we are on the Armenian side. We do tend to worry about it. I would say more in evangelical and Pentecostal traditions than the mainline tradition. But in the evangelical and Pentecostal traditions, we want to cooperate with God because we see this as an active battle. And that's one of the things that Richard Beck does in this book. Uh, he really points out that it's the people on the margins who see this battle more so. When you're poor, you see the demonic. When you are ill, you see the demonic. When you are uh, living, uh, when you're homeless, when you're in prison, it's easy to see the demonic. Whereas those of us in the more mainline traditions, once we've hit a certain level of prosperity, we get shielded from that. We don't see the poverty. We don't see the sickness. We don't see the inside of a jailhouse, or if we do, because of our privilege, we we can get out of jail pretty easy. That's just the way it works. And so we tend to be a little blind to that, and we tend to think it doesn't exist, because if, we, if you don't see something, it must not exist, right? And so that's <laughs> kind of the weird balance that's going on. And so you've got the Calvinists, you've got the Armenian, but I would say where where privilege is concerned, where wealth is concerned, both the Calvinist and the Armenian within the mainline traditions like we are, don't see what's happening, either one of us, so we don't see 
the need for spiritual warfare. Not much to add to that. No. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. I, I will say that um, just for the sake of completeness, there is also another setting that is literally off the end of the spectrum, which is what you see in a lot of traditional fantasy settings like D&D or, you know, the Diablo setting where you've got physically manifested visible angels and demons like walking around and slugging it out in full view of everybody knocking down buildings and shooting blasts of fire at each other. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> That's fun, man. That's what, fun. Yeah, one, one has a hard time referring to that as spiritual warfare anymore. It's, it seems more like just actual warfare, but uh, yeah. that setting does exist. Yeah, of oh, course. Yeah. And trust me, I've played a lot of that. Amen, yeah. brother. Ask me about my Boazon sometime. Anyway. <laughs> um, so we've, we've got um, people from different religious traditions here and different backgrounds, but I think we can all agree that C.S. Lewis is awesome. Yes? Oh, yes. amen, brother. Yes. <laughs> C.S. Lewis did a really nice job of defining what I would contend is the exact center of this spectrum in the Screwtape Letters. The Screwtape Letters chronicles a bunch of correspondence between this junior demon and his uncle slash boss screw tape as he attempts to for lack of a more lengthy explanation mess with a man on earth as he goes through his life well mess with makes it sound a little trivial he tries to yeah. corrupt, corrupt him subvert yes. him uh distract him very often Basically, his job is to make this man look away from God and towards the earth. Literally anything else. Yeah. yeah. You know, if you can if you can turn him towards the devil, that's ideal. But really, his job is to just keep his eyes off the divine. Keep him wanting anything except God. Very powerful book. Uh, one of two books that I credit for really making me into a Christian. The other being Lewis's Mere Christianity. Oh my goodness, I did not know that. We were on the same page. It did the same thing for me, Grant. I knew I loved yeah, you for a I, reason. I mean, you know, I, I was born and raised and brought up in the Presbyterian Church, but that if I had one of those come-to-Jesus moments, it was, it was a come-to-Jesus, like, two-week period of reading books, but I'll take it. Amen. Uh, it really was reading those. That is very consistent with your personality. Dude, I'll take that, I'll take that yeah. every day. As a pastor, I love it when somebody says, hey, man, I spent two or three weeks mulling over these things. Let, let me get all pastoral here. You know, in the evangelical traditions, we're used to people saying, come to Jesus right now in this moment. Don't think about it. Just do it. But as a pastor, I'm going to say the people I've seen who have stayed committed the longest, the ones who, who stay on that sure and steady road, Grant, are those folks who have said, I wrestled with this, I read about it, I thought over it. And the funny thing is, is that actually was an initial part of the evangelical tradition. Evangelicals used to not do that, make a decision right now. They would have a mourner's bench in the church where people who were wrestling with it would come and sit, and that was their place to listen, to pray, to ask questions, and to struggle with it. So in the evangelical tradition, originally, you were struggling and asking questions. It wasn't a, an immediate thing. It was something that you came to over a period of time because you knew this was a lifelong commitment. Yeah. Cast your seed on the uh, fertilized ground kind of thing. 
Yes, very much yeah. so. Very much so. That's a great yeah. analogy. And in this analogy, I would say you're almost kind of plowing in your own fertilizer beforehand. So mm-hmm. Now, to get back to Lewis, though, and this, uh, this middle-spectrum idea of spiritual warfare, the idea here is not so much that there is this massive, ongoing war, but rather there is this struggle. And it gets to a position that I think most churches hold, even the the ones that very carefully minimalize spiritual warfare. Many of them will still hold the position that demons and angels exist and work in the world and influence it. Each person is a battleground. It's not this battle waging around them, but rather within them and about them. Yeah, and I will say that I I have kept rather quiet on this subject. I would say that although I do know that my personal views do not align particularly well with even with the the church that I grew up in, this is probably the closest that that my personal beliefs on this subject get. Somewhere between this one and the next one that we're going to talk about. And this last end of the spectrum, you know, that admits the existence of angels and demons at all, uh, is, well, it's kind of what Richard Beck is talking about, this reviving old scratch idea. The idea that when we're talking about powers and principalities, we're talking about things that are both spiritual and structural in the world, actual earthly powers. Uh, Because we do see... That when Paul, for example, is writing about, you know, the powers of the world, he's often using the same terminology, sometimes at the same time, to talk about the powers of the world and the powers over the world, these spiritual powers as well as earthly powers, these larger structures, somewhat intangible, bigger than any one person who still affect and change the world and affect people's lives directly. Yeah, this is um, where you start getting into admitting the supernatural stuff is still there. But a lot of the time, you'll start using the word spirit kind of less in the sense of a ghost and more in the sense of the zeitgeist, which translated literally, by the way, means time mind or time spirit and references the dominant set of beliefs and ideals in a given society, place and time. This perspective is maybe a little easier to grasp with examples, so I have a couple. One of them from my personal life is uh, the job that I held before my current one. I worked for Barnes & Noble for a very long time. I was at the same store for about 14 and a half years. And that store had a very healthy and positive culture to it. Uh, It was very much kind of a three musketeers, all for one and one for all kind of an attitude. Everybody was supportive of each other um, and helped a lot. And... That attitude persisted through that workplace, despite a very heavy turnover rate and new people coming and old ones leaving all the time. And it even survived some toxic management that came through at both the store and the district level and a number of changes in company policy. But you couldn't point at any one individual that was responsible for that. It just kind of stuck. On the other, much more negative end of the spectrum, Richard Beck, in the book that we keep referencing, uh, speaks a lot about the harsh and pitiless uh, environment that the guys in his prison ministry have to live in day in and day out, where any kind of compassion or tenderness is judged as weakness and is treated very harshly by 
the environment of the prison. It's just those are the rules there. That is the spirit of that place. You can also see something of this idea in times in history that make you want to believe in fate, like the run up to World War One, where if you go back and you read the histories or do some research on it, you'll find that really nobody wanted that war. And yet everybody felt compelled to do what they did. And that created one of the nastiest wars in all of human history, certainly the nastiest one up to that point. It's less obviously gameable on the surface because it's more subtle, right? But I think it can still work well with some thought. I'm going to disagree with you there because it's very, very gameable. Anybody who has okay. played a World of Darkness game has already played with this. Yeah, I guess you're I guess you're right there. Yeah. It, it's not like uh, a tangible... It's not like we're talking about dice or minis or physical objects here. It's more along the lines of the atmosphere that you want to inject into your game. And I think it could also have to do a lot with the group template as well. How your characters are related to one another is going to affect the the zeitgeist of your game. That's true. Um, world of Darkness has a concept, at least Old World, I guess New World of Darkness as well, but I've mostly only played Old World stuff, where these spirits, these you know, the, the collective spirit of a particular community, a particular building, a particular corporation... These are spiritually real, and characters who interact with spirits in some way, basically player characters, <laughs> unless you're playing like an Innocence game, they can usually interact with those or have to. I remember in the Mage game I played, you know, we were routinely dealing with the spirits that were either very large or sometimes very small and localized, but still fairly powerful. And, you know, it's the idea of here's this horrible, corrupt spirit because the workplace environment is toxic, but because the spirit of the place is toxic, the workplace environment is toxic. And it gets that idea of animism where there's a physical reality and a spiritual reality, and they're the same reality. It's a very World of Darknessy, magey, werewolfy kind of idea. But that's kind of how World of Darkness plays out. And if you fix one, you fix the other, or, or destroy one, you change the other, that sort of thing. Let me interject with a uh, kind of a real-life example. Part of uh, what I've seen, uh, first, I want to give a little background. Uh, one of the things that Richard Beck did in the book is he does not view the demonic as a personal demon like C.S. Lewis would, uh, like C.S. Lewis did in the Screwtape Letters. So there's no personal demonic force, no individual demonic force. It's, like you said, the spirit of the age, or the spirit of the place. And the example I give when I talk about that, when I was a, a new Christian, I was working for a funeral home. And part of my job was to stay at the funeral home overnight, and I would get, if there was a call to go out with the coroner, we had to go out with the coroner on a call. And I got a call that we had a pickup to do. Obviously, you're pretty sure what we had to go pick up. Someone had passed away. I did not know the details of what happened. All I knew it was, was a pickup. And so this was my first pickup ever. And I, I went out there with the coroner. I walked in to the place. And now you have to understand, I'm a new Christian. I'm, I'm very much in the Pentecostal tradition, so I, at that time, I would say that had partially an influence on me, but I remember walking into this house, 
and just feeling this wave of despair coming over me. It was just a huge wave of despair. And right after that, I was told that the pickup was for a man who had committed suicide. And that place just felt so despairing. And so that's kind of how I I would view kind of what Beck's talking about. There's kind of this resonance of what is there that has occurred in reality. It leaves behind some sort of spiritual resonance. I've heard similar stories of people who have been to former Nazi concentration camps and places like that, people who have been to uh, old battlefields. It's just, you know, now part of it could be, you know, the humanist within me, the naturalist within me wants to say, well, that's just psychological thing playing out. But on the other side, the Christian within me says, you know, there is some something resonating there, something that's troubling our soul and troubling our spirit because we've walked into this place where all of this horror has occurred. And these things aren't mutually exclusive, it bears mentioning. Correct. Yeah. And that goes into what you what you have here in our notes is is wrestling with your demons. That is is part of the demonic is we wrestle with our personal demons and our personal demons are often the systems and all of these things that have come into being that have influenced us over the course of our life. If your personal demon uh, is, say, for instance, an addiction, uh, if you grew up in an addictive home, there was, was that kind of oppressive demonic thing that gets passed on to you. And whereas in Pentecostalism, we would have said, well, that is the demon of addiction. And that demon of addiction is in your family. And that demon has a specific name. And if you can figure out that demon's specific name, you can cast it out. Whereas, you know, now I would say something different. I would say it is demonic. It is malignant. It is malevolent. It's something that has been there. And it is this ongoing force that has just been hammering away at your family and you do need to battle it but you don't need to find out the demon's name but you do need to acknowledge that it is a malignant force that is oppressing you has oppressed your family and when you go back to a 12 steps program what's the first thing you do you admit what you are hi my name's Derek I'm an alcoholic if that's your addiction And so you have to acknowledge it. You can't ignore it. And that's one of the mistakes we make in the main line is we often ignore it. Now, as a gamer, that's the best plot line ever is when you have, you know, the demonic forces working against your players and they don't even know it. Of course, the demonic force is the game master uh, <laughs> working, <laughs> you know, working actively against them, but they don't see it. They don't see what's happening. They don't see the behind-the-scenes stuff. And it's only when they acknowledge it, only when they recognize it, that they be- can begin to overcome it. It's especially good if you, you run games that aren't as much hack and slash, you run more narrative style games. One thing I do want to mention, this is actually from a, a very good article that the PCUSA Church puts out. There's a, a whole series of what we believe articles, and this one's from their article about evil. It's a long article, I'm certainly not going to quote the whole thing, 
give you a little context, they've just talked about powers and principalities and the stress that many Christians, uh, including some Presbyterians, put on the invisible spiritual side of these powers, uh, ignoring the worldly dimension, to pick it up here. But the Reformed tradition, which includes Presbyterianism, has insisted that the power's earthly human dimension be kept in view. We take the New Testament's language about powers and principalities to refer not or not exclusively to spirit beings, but also to social entities and norms for behavior. Whether or not one understands the powers as spirit beings, it is important to recognize the systemic dimensions of sin that they foster. Uh. And that, I think, is is very important. It gets back to kind of what I was talking about, but, you know, the spirit of a place, the spirit of a organization, the spirit of a country, the spirit of a Roman Empire, uh, the spirit right. of a crowd that gathers before Pontius Pilate demanding one perceived Messiah over the real Messiah. That same idea of what we expect and the, the social norms we've created for ourselves and organizations that, while may potentially be good, can be influenced. So it, it's a good read, long, but a pretty good read, and I'll link it in the show notes. But that's one other approach to it is this idea that the powers of the world are also the real powers here. And Paul is talking about those specifically in Ephesians, for example. You know, he's talking not only about the spiritual dangers that we face, but also the spiritual dangers of these present powers that are nonetheless bigger than one person. They're the society we live in and the things we create collectively for ourselves. All right, Derek, you added to the outline as he was talking, so let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, and this is very important. This is very important because this is where Richard Beck steps in. We have to note that Richard Beck... Uh, would really agree with a lot of what you said there. But he says this is also where we have to be very careful because what we can do is we can conflate the powers and the principalities with individuals. And one of the examples he gives is an example I really hate to use because we're internet savvy people, but it's the example of Hitler. Mm -hmm. and, and what yeah. he has to put, what he points out is Hitler was a human being who was a man. Hitler was a man. He loved his family. He loved people. He loved animals. He was a vegetarian. Beck doesn't point that out, but we, we have to acknowledge that Hitler was a human being with human emotions, human loves, and human hatreds. But Nazism was demonic. The demonic was not Adolf Hitler. The demonic is Nazism. And Nazism still lives on today. The racists in the 1960s who uh, stood against civil rights, the racists who killed civil rights protesters, civil rights advocates, those racists are human beings and they have names and they have families. And Beck points out that our hatred and anger should not be at the individuals who did these things. And that's difficult. Mm -hmm. But our hatred and anger should be at the demonic, and that demonic has a name. It's called racism. Sexism is the same thing. 
Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't call out the individual racist. I'm not saying we shouldn't call out the individual Nazi. We shouldn't call out the individual sexist. But we have to be careful in how we do it, because if we do it in mass, if we do it together and we try and destroy the individual racist, we try and destroy the individual Nazi, and we try and destroy the individual sexist, then we too become demonic in our search for violence and retribution. And Yeah, this is where we say to go back and listen to the last episode that we had Derek on about the myth of redemptive violence. Exactly, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's where all of this is interconnected. That is the thing. The myth of redemptive violence, spiritual warfare, all of these things are connected. And the answer is, of course, you've got that next in the show notes, is the Christus Victor answer, is the answer that Christ gives us victory over these dark forces. And the victory is found in love and in compassion. In love and compassion, not just for friend and neighbor, but for enemy and stranger. And this is the difficulty this is what makes christianity suck okay this is what makes <laughs> christianity hard and that is to love those who hate you do good to those who despitefully use you when the government says to you here you have to go a mile you go two miles and this is the difficult calling, you know, for so long in evangelicalism and in Pentecostalism, I was told the difficulty was making sure I didn't have sex outside of marriage. I was told the difficulty of the Christian faith was wearing the right clothes, looking the right way, not cussing, not drinking, not smoking. No, the difficulty of the Christian faith. That stuff faith, is child's play compared to this stuff. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the difficulty of the Christian faith is to love the jerks in the world. Uh, love the people who are not the nicest of folks. This is the difficulty of being a Christian, is to be right. rooted and grounded in love and to respond to the individual person who is acting demonically with love, but to respond to the system as an evil, malevolent force. Yeah, I, I want to quote again from this same article. Because I, I think they conclude very appropriately for this. Talking about how this idea that we fight violence and evil with death or with punishment, it's, it's a very fallen human response, but it's not a Christ-like response. I'm going to quote here. God's power is not the power of death, for death is, quote, the last enemy, which will itself be destroyed, as uh, you see in 1 Corinthians 15.26. God's power is the power to create, the power to endure, the power to forgive, the power to love. God's power is resurrection power. It is the power of life. Such power, freely given, is God's answer to the problem of evil until that great day when all creation is set free from its bondage. Mm, good stuff. So we've talked enough, I think, about what this question of spiritual warfare is and these different perspectives on it. Uh, one thing I do want to stress, by the way, I, I will say from my personal perspective, a lot of churches either talk about this incessantly or they don't talk about it much at all. And while moderation is never exactly, you know, always right, 
I personally suspect the truth may lie a little bit more in the middle than either side is really willing to admit. Yeah, it, it's perhaps maybe not the worst idea in the world to um, think that maybe C.S. Lewis was onto something. Yeah. I mean, he has mm -hmm. been before. True. I do want to talk a little bit more about gaming these ideas. Certainly, you got to figure out if you want to have some aspect of you know, spiritual conflict and spiritual warfare in your game, where on this spectrum we have laid out are you putting your game? That's, I think, the first thing you have to figure out. And certainly I understand the impulse is to have crazy demons and angels flying around everywhere doing crazy stuff, but we've talked about some of the dangers of that. Well, and hey, if you want to do that, there's an actual game called Anamine where you can do that. Sure. It is available for very inexpensive on DriveThruRPG. I don't know if it's still <laughs> being physically published, but I actually have the PDF pulled up right now, and I have been casually scrolling through it every now and then as we've been recording this episode. I um, have <laughs> most of the library of that game in printed form from back when it was originally printed. I can see oh, it very from where nice. I'm sitting. And I will say, if you want to run a game like that, or really probably any game involving this, I can name one really good, useful resource for you. That's Gustav Davidson's A Dictionary of Angels, Including the Fallen Angels. I'll link this on Amazon in the show notes as well. I have a copy of it, got it for Christmas one year, and it is a big old book of angels and devils from Christian, Jewish, and Islamic traditions, all of which make for fantastic resources. It's a proper encyclopedia of all of them, talking about appearances in various places, meanings, interpretations, areas that they're supposed to have influence over, all sorts of things. Many of them are just, here's a name of an angel found on an amulet, and nobody has any idea what it is. Many of them have <laughs> lengthy entries. So, great stuff. what Grant is saying is if you want to get your inner Neil Gaiman going, this is a really good place to start. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. I have to throw in a great gaming resource because I'm old school. Are y'all familiar with uh, Rollades? Heard of it. Okay. Rollades, it's R-O-L-E-A-I-D-S. They have some great resources. You can still find them on the secondhand market. It's some of the best I've ever seen. They have, One is called Demons. Uh, there is another called, I, I can't even pronounce some of the names. They did one, they did Demons, they did Demons 2, they did one called Apocalypse. Uh, the, it is just some amazing stuff. It was put out by Mayfair, and those demon supplements are just wonderful. I, I think they even did an angelic one called Sentinels, if I remember right. But yeah, there's Denizens of Og, Denizens of Arachna. It, it's just amazing. I own them. I, I can't recommend them highly enough. It, it's some really, really good stuff. Derek, I'm really glad that you actually spelled that out because Rollades are also an antacid. And I honestly thought that that was what you were talking about for like a good five seconds. Well, the, game, the name was a pun <laughs> on the antacid name. Yes. Oh, really? No yes. way. Awesome. Yes, yeah. I know the antacid because, well, I have indigestion all the time because I'm an old gamer. <laughs> and I eat good old gamer food. Where's the pizza, boys? Mm, yeah. And then my wife the next day is like... I put like, chili what? on my pizza. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Extra pepperoni. Oh, yeah. Throw some of them little fish on there. 
Woo! And then you're talking about the demonic because you're breathing fire six hours later. <laughs> I mean, that's true. Um, to, to pull it slightly away from Stella Gas. It's been a very long day, and that was very funny. Good, good. I, I got us to laugh. And, and there we go. It's always good when I get someone to laugh. There we go. Uh, Definitely. Uh, um, to pull us very slightly back away from the demonic and stomach acid, <laughs> if you're doing something more at the, the subtle end of things, you do want to give thought to what the spirit of the place or culture or organization or whatever it is, uh, what that spirit is is and is like, what effect it has, and what it represents. Now, be careful not to make this too animist, but, you know, if you have the, you know, the spirit of a particular organization, like, you know, the spirit of this Burger King is just terrible, you know, <laughs> something like that, that could conceivably be pretty valid. Strikes me very strongly of a very animist game. Um, I, I should amend what Grant is saying while he's thinking here. To not go too animist with this unless that's what you're looking to do. Right. If you're if you're trying to stick to the actual, like, theological territory that we're in, getting too animist is going to throw you off of the flavor. If, if you're doing an animist game, you know, more power to you, but that's not what we're talking about today. A good example of a way you can do this in a game, a great example, is what I call the lawful evil example. And I've done this as a dungeon master. Are y'all familiar with the midnight setting? Uh, from, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, Midnight is a really good example of this, is that it's a very orderly world. Everything is or in order. You have everything under control, but everything's pretty much evil. And the laws and the rules are put in place to be oppressive and to keep people under control and under the thumb. You can use that system as an example of the evil forces working behind it. So the way to bring down the evil forces is to bring down the system, the oppressive system. A good pop culture reference for that is going to be the, the Handmaid's Tale, which is an example of an evil, oppressive system, a religious system, which you know, for many people might look good on the outside. Oh, look at all the order. Look at all the peace, you know, uh, well, let's go back to the ancient days. Uh, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, Rome had its rules, but it was an oppressive system that required you to act in a certain way. And that oppressive system can become demonic. It can become wicked. It can become evil. And putting that into a game, which I've done many times, and what I've done is I've put that into a game the, the players bring down the system, they're fighting to bring down the system, and then I, as the system begins to crumble, the evil powers behind it rise up, and then they get to have their boss battle with the evil powers that were behind the system. And There is no war in bossing, say. There you go. There you go. Uh, the game I was trying to think of, by the way, Nobilis. Oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah. yeah Very that's... animist game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a fun game. I don't know if I've played it, but I've read through it. That's, oh, man, yeah, that's fun. Also, by the way, are we going to just let that awesome Avatar the Airbender reference just go? <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the best examples. It really is. So if you're playing yeah. a game 
like um there there's that that one system that was actually based off of Avatar the Last Air, Airbender. I think it's called Do, spelled D O. Um bring in the uh, Do Pilgrims of the Flying Temple. Yes. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. For the record, it's a very light game designed mostly for younger kids. <laughs> yeah. Introduce your children to the revolution. Daniel Solis, I believe is the <laughs> the game designer for that. Uh it's an evil hat one. It's published through Evil Hat, but I think it's Daniel Solis' game. (sighs) Evil Hat. I I just have to say, thank you guys for introducing me to Evil Hat. You guys are the ones that introduced (laughs) me to Evil Hat. And I love, I have yet to come across anything they put out that I did not like. Yeah. And uh, yes, Grant, you were corrected as a Daniel Solis game. All right. Yeah, Evil Evil Hat is the Firaxis of the uh, tabletop gaming thing. They don't put out bad stuff generally. Avatar The Last Airbender, I've, I've heard it stated that Avatar The Last Airbender was the best at showing, and Legend of Korra as well, the best at showing the different types of dictatorships and the different, like, the the lawful and neutral and chaotic evil. They were really, really good at showing that there is no one right way to do good and no one right way to go- to do evil in certain situations. I mean, obviously there's going to be like times where like there is only one option to do good and only one option to do evil, but it was also a very good show in that it showed that you did not have to sacrifice your your own morals in order to solve a problem. But that's a little bit off topic and we can talk about that another time. Yeah, also has a walking redemption arc named Uncle Iroh and um and yeah, Zuko. it's just a generally good show. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, but Iroh's kind of responsible for that. <laughs> yeah, in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole redemption theme in Airbender was just just gorgeous, man. I loved it. I loved it. I never got to finish watching Korra because of how it was airing at the time. But one of these yeah, days, I'm going to sit down and and finish watching Korra. Because that is just was was a great series too. Yeah. Also, one of the f- most fearsome wrecking machines in the entire setting is a ten-year-old blind girl. Yep. Well, well, <laughs> to stay on topic with the demonic and uh, some of the way it, it's portrayed, one of the things that the Airbender did, especially in Korra, is it showed these spirit beings. Which, now this is very Eastern, but but we have to remember the Bible was written by Easterners. The New Testament and the Older Testament both come out of an Eastern world. And very often these spirit beings, especially we see this in uh, the legend of Korah, these spirit beings are often very neutral. And they can be influenced by humanity. The spirit beings can be... uh, can be corrupted by human beings. That is a really good theme to throw in the game, is that the spirit beings are very neutral, but when human beings encounter them, depending on the level of virtue within the human or uh, the level of vice within the human, the spirit being becomes either more pure and more helpful, more good, or the spirit being becomes more evil, more wicked. That way, you leave the responsibility on the human, or if he plays at a game, you leave the responsibility on the player. So if you want to have fun in a game, you could have your your player encounter some sort of minor spirit being, 
and the more virtuous your player becomes the more good the spirit being becomes and it it becomes this self-replicating thing that goes out and does good in the world but the more filled with vice the the player is the more evil the player does the more corrupt the spirit being becomes and so then when the player tries to do something good or do something right the spirit being wars against them and it becomes uh, filled with their own evil and their own bile always reminding them kind of like the old cartoon the angel on one shoulder the devil on the other i'd also say another good example of this is no face from spirited away Uh, when no face is is in a place of greed Mm. he exudes greed from himself when Mm. he's in a place of of calm and compassion and caring he becomes a very calm uh or they uh become a very calm compassionate spirit you see that in a lot of miyazaki films actually Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You definitely yeah. do. But no, no Face is the one that comes immediately to mind. Oh, that's a great example. And I just like you even more quoting Spirit Away. Ooh, you're one oh, of my new best yeah, friends there. Ooh, I love that. <laughs> I love that. That is one of my favorites right there. Yeah, that movie helped me get through a very rough time. Oh, um, man. Mm. It, it, was, it was the right movie for the right time. Also, awesome. Grant, uh, I'm I'm sensing something that I would think you could do with the uh, water spirit in our basement and uh, <laughs> the D and D game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I need to look into that. Last thing I want to say about this before we close things out. Peter had a, a very good saying that he dug up: "Ora et labora," which means pray and work. Regardless of where you come down on the spectrum that we've defined in this episode as to what spiritual warfare looks like, how it kind of takes place, pray and work will give you an appropriate response to it. Sit down and pray for difficult situations, pray for darkness that you see to, to be lifted and, you know, for God's mercy to shine through, and then go out and see if you can be his implement in making it happen. Right. And I think that's a good place to wrap things up. Well, if you don't mind, I would sure. like to add one last thing because I have to get all preachery. I can't help it. It's in my DNA now. Please uh, do. One of the things that yeah. Richard Beck pointed out, now this is, you, you might be able to use this in your gaming, but this is uh, especially true. And this is one of the keys to being a spiritual warrior. And this is what Beck said. The church is a form of spiritual warfare. And he quotes Gene Veneer in saying this, Community is the place where our limitations, our fears, and our egotism are revealed to us. We discover our poverty and our weaknesses, our inability to get on with other people, our mental and emotional blocks, our affective and sexual disturbances, our seemingly insatiable desires, our frustrations and jealousies, our hatred and our wish to destroy one another. While we are alone, we could believe we loved everyone. Now that we are with others, living with them all the time, we realize how incapable we are of loving, how much we deny to others, how closed on ourselves we are. And so I would say that spiritual warfare, true spiritual warfare for the, for the person of faith, is a communal act and it is not done alone it's not like the exorcist where the lone priest goes into battle it's not like all of the movies where we have that one warrior who goes into battle against the evil forces it's not a paladin in hell but is the church 
and to quote Jesus, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church, not the individual, it's the church, and the church is the place of spiritual warfare. That's a good place to wrap this up. <laughs> yep. Yes. I think it's traditional, actually, to give Derek the last word on the episodes we have him on for good <laughs> yeah. reason. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm I mean, sorry. Oh, no. that, that tradition exists for an excellent reason, and you just heard it. So Exactly. <laughs> yep. Well, Derek, thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. It's good talking to you once again. Man, it's always great hanging out with you guys. It just, it, it's always a wonderful way to end my day. Feeling is mutual. Absolutely. Uh, and thank you for, for sticking around late and joining us late through technical issues and everything else. We really appreciate your patience on that. Hey, man, I was just fighting the demonic, bro. <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, it's not for, wrong. It's not for wrong. anybody who wants to find you on the internet, find more of your stuff, hear about where you might be going for conventions and all of that good stuff, where do they want to go? Uh, you can either go to my website, uh, geekpreacher.org, or you can uh, go to my Facebook page, uh, The Geek Preacher. Just look up The Geek Preacher or Geek Preacher on Facebook. Any updates I have will be there. Uh, you can find out what church I'm currently working at. Or you can just look up my personal page on Facebook, Derek White. Uh, it's a common name, but if you've got gaming friends in common with me, you will probably pop up. I, as long as I see you, we've got friends in common, I will nine times out of ten accept a friend request. And I update where I'm at. I update if I have any speaking engagements on various social media, uh, I'm easy to find. Yeah, if in particular, if you're already friends with one or more of us on Facebook, he'll pop right up. In fact, you've probably seen us interacting with him on Facebook at this point. So. Yes. <laughs> and we have it on good authority from others that if you follow Derek on Twitter, you will start finding other people recommended to you who are equally awesome. So good reason to follow Derek on Twitter. I mean, yeah. come on. Yeah, just Google Geek Preacher, you'll find me. There's only one, so... Right. All one word. Yeah, just one word. Yeah, do it as one word, even when Google tries to fix it. It's just one <laughs> word, Geek Preacher. Well, Derek, thank you again. Really appreciate your time. Looking forward to doing this again sometime, man. I'm looking forward to it again as well. Excellent. All right. Well, from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. Take it easy. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.